This is episode 11 of No Word is an Island Advanced English, the podcast for advanced English learners and the people who teach them. Remember that this podcast is meant to be used with the interactive transcript available at betterlanguagelearning.com podcast. The transcript contains annotations on difficult vocabulary as well as Quizlet flashcard sets for self-study so that you can commit this vocabulary to memory and become a more fluent, and articulate English speaker. From the podcast episode page, you can subscribe to receive bonus monthly review materials. For daily videos, follow me on Instagram at Better Language Learning. Today I'm working with notes, but not a complete script. Uh, up until now, I've scripted all of the episodes, and to be honest, I'm not always happy with the result because. I basically feel like I come across uh, a bit unnatural. I don't sound quite like myself. So uh, I'm used to teaching students and having people in front of me and interacting with them. And obviously in the podcast, I don't have that um, as I'm all alone here. So um, I'm going to be working with a slightly different format today and we'll see how it goes. So if you notice, my style is a bit more meandering. That is, I go from one thing to another and it may not be immediately clear what my point is. Well bear with me. Uh, this is basically the way uh, I would be in if you had me in a classroom. So, um, uh, uh, yeah, so in with, without further ado, as we say, uh, let's begin. So, I've been thinking about the idea of being well-read. In English, we talk about a person being well-read to suggest that they've read a, a lot of books on a wide range of subjects. And the Assumption is that someone who's well-read is knowledgeable about a lot of different subjects. And I was thinking how this adjective for someone, to say someone's well-read, it's almost, it sounds almost quaint nowadays. It sounds a bit old-fashioned um, because it assumes, because we wouldn't say that someone's well-read if they've read every single Harry Potter book and every single, I don't know, Fifty Shades uh, and so on. The underlying assumption is that someone who's well-read well has read widely among a predetermined group of books. I talked in a previous episode about the so-called canon. So I'm going to talk about the Western canon a bit pompously, as if in the Western world, which is a very nebulous concept, so in European societies, that there are certain books that we all agree are great works of art and that everyone should read. Now, for good reasons, in recent years, people have called into question the very idea that we can have a canon. But what's happened is that we've kind of thrown out the baby with the bathwater, which means we've gotten rid of the good with the bad. There are lots of reasons to question the idea of a canon, but to completely abolish it, to do away with it, is, I think, uh, also dangerous for its own reasons. So we're going to explore this today. And so I was thinking about, well, if someone's well-read, again, it's a question of, well, who, according to whom, who, who says which books are important to read? Well, that's up for debate. Um, you can find, and I, for this podcast, I looked up um, lists, you can find lots of lists of 
so-called must-read books. For instance, I came up with one, uh, I found one rather, uh, in The Guardian online, and it's about 100 best nonfiction books of the last 500 years. And if you take a look at this list, which you can see by clicking on the link I'm including in the transcript, you'll see that um, it's skewed heavily in favor of male writers, white male writers, um, perhaps heterosexual, I don't know. <laughs> um, so um, we could say this is problematic. Um, also, they're all people who wrote in English. That excludes a huge amount of uh, great writing and great thinking. Uh, so having said this uh, as sort of a caveat, I'm acknowledging that this list is very limited or problematic. Uh, as I uh, scanned the list, there are a lot of fantastic books on the list. And interestingly, I haven't read any of the authors, or very few, to be honest. I have read a couple. Um, so a couple that are on the list, uh, if you're wondering, a couple of people that I think are worth um, knowing about, um, for instance, who are not uh, necessarily dead white men. <laughs> um, for instance, um, a couple of people uh, that I noticed on the list I found very interesting. Rachel Carson, who wrote about ecology and what she thought was an impending ecological collapse back in 1962. Germaine um, Greer in the early 70s, uh, a female eunuch, uh, a pioneering work of feminism. John Maynard Keynes, a very important economist who influences uh, decision-making to this day. Uh, James Baldwin, a black American writer who wrote about um, his experience as a black man in America. He was also gay. Now, so I think sometimes people who suggest that the canon is not open to people who don't fit this uh, one stereo, you know, the stereo that only dead white men are included in the canon. Well, I think that's a bit of a straw man argument. A straw man argument is when you want to criticize someone, you will often simplify their arguments. You will take away any valid points that your opponent might have to make it easier when you criticize them to make them their argument seem weak. So I think sometimes the arguments against the canon are a straw man argument. We, um, because I think a lot of people who recommend certain books uh, do so uh, consciously aware, fully aware that um, any list is imperfect and deeply problematic and yet we still need them. Um, so, um, as I was thinking about this concept of being well-read, I remembered a book I'd heard of a couple of years ago, and it's called How to Talk About Books You Haven't Read. And the author is Pierre Bayard. He's a psychiatrist and professor of literature. He's a French. And um, I read a review of his book by Hilary Mantel in The Guardian. Hilary Mantel is a very well-known British author, um, uh, fam quite famous. Uh, and in her um, review, she points out, she basically summarizes ide his ideas and also engages with them and criticizes them or cr critiques them. And um, 
one of the things that she points out is that um, this book talks about what does it actually mean to have read a book. For instance, if you've skimmed it, that's it. That is, if you've gone over it not too carefully, not reading it thoroughly, maybe uh, skipping pages and so on. Well, if you've only skimmed it, for instance, or if you've only read a few chapters, can you say that you've read that book? Um, or what if you read the entire book, but it was a long time ago? Does that reading expire once you've forgotten what you've read? Um, she also points out um, another of his interesting arguments that we, we always think of, or rather we tend to think of reading as a solitary activity. And yet, um, as Bayard uh, highlights, it actually exists in a social context. So we may have heard about pe people talking, uh, people around us talking about a book so much that it's almost as if we've read the book. I mean, Romeo and Juliet or Hamlet. Um, <laughs> um, I was in a meeting today and a colleague of mine and I were joking and we remember, we both, we remembered this line together and we said, ah, something's rotten in the state of Denmark. That's a line from the play which suggests that there's something wrong in a situation. There's corruption. There's a lack of honesty. And um, when was the last time she or I read Hamlet? Years and years ago. Maybe, maybe I think I'd, I have read it. I don't know. Maybe she hasn't. But the point is, it doesn't really matter. We have, we have absorbed these ideas from the play, um, perhaps without having read the play or seen it. So the idea is that books can exist in our imagination without us ever having read the book in question. Um, and Bayard is not saying that this is a bad thing. It's he's very playful, and he 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 seems to be he talks about um, the idea of liberating yourself from the pressure to read books in their entirety, and the idea that we should we shouldn't feel oppressed by. Uh, our two, our our, our 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 reading lists, or if we put down a book and don't finish it, we shouldn't have a sense that that's not a valid experience. And uh, this reminded me of a time back when I was studying literature uh, about twenty years ago. I was doing my masters in Spanish literature, and I had to submit uh, an essay and give a presentation on uh, a book in a Latin American literature course. And I was we were reading. Rayuela, which is translated as hopscotch, by an author called Julio Cortázar. And interestingly, Rayuela, which is the game, which in English we call hopscotch, was designed by Cortázar rather playfully in a way that in his, in, at the beginning of the book, he instructs the reader to treat the chapters like you would treat, as if you were playing a game of hopscotch. So the idea is that you can hop from one chapter to another, and his point is that you don't have to read the book in a linear way, um, and that it's the idea that the reader has this power to choose, and has some power over their own uh, their own reading and the way that the way they read. So, I think uh, Cortázar and Bayard would have a really interesting discussion if Cortázar were still around. Um, so, anyway, back to my assignment, and so. The clock was ticking. I hadn't uh, finished my assignment, and I had to speak in front of the, uh, my uh, my classmates. And 
I finally got down to reading. And if, if you are familiar with, uh, with Rayuela, this book is incredibly long. It's a very long, long book. <laughs> and so I ended up coming across a chapter which was really significant, uh, I thought. Basically, what I did is I cheated. There was no way I was going to get anywhere near finishing the book. And I read this, these few pages from one chapter, which seemed really important to me. And so I thought, well, these, this, this episode in the book seems to be kind of emblematic, kind of represented the bigger ideas from the book. So I basically decided to present my ideas uh, just referring to this one episode. And I kind of fudged it. This means I didn't say to the professor or to my classmates, I haven't finished the book. What I did is I said, I'm going to focus on this passage because it's so important. Um, and I don't think I was wrong, but I was also being a bit opportunistic. But anyway, um, in the end, I really enjoyed the task and I got an, a very good <laughs> mark on the, on the uh, assignment. And, um, and now that I think about it, uh, maybe I was putting into practice uh, what Bayard is saying, that indeed, um, reading should not, it's, it, we can read part of a book and that doesn't necessarily make that experience invalid. Now, I'm not trying to make an argument for reading fewer books, um, and I don't think uh, Bayard is either, although I have to admit, I actually haven't read Bayard. I've read, I've read interviews with him, I've read this review by Hilary Mantel, and that's a wonderful thing about books, is that we can actually have a relationship with a book, um, we can know about a book, uh, without having read it. And, and so I actually think maybe to build on Bayard's ideas, maybe to be well-read, we have to be less obsessed with reading lots of books firsthand. We need to be more curious about finding out about books, finding about, out about the ideas, and how can we do this? Now, uh, one service that's become very popular in recent years that you've probably heard about advertised on the internet is something called Blinkist. And they sell these short capsules. They're 15 minute summaries of books. And most of the books I think are in the, in the uh, realm of business and personal development, if I'm not mistaken. I have a lot of issues with the Blinkist approach because I think we actually have a solution to this problem of how do we find out about books without having to read them all. And that is by reading book reviews. I think book reviews, which have existed for a long time, are actually far superior to these so-called innovative apps like Blinkist. I've talked about long-form journalism in previous episodes, such as um, the TLS, the Times Literary Supplement, and The Economist. These are just a couple of examples. Um, Traditionally, serious publications, and I'm saying serious somewhat, well, you know, with air quotes, because what nowadays people might question what, what counts as a serious publication. I would say there are uh, serious publications, and you should be reading them, and, and the TLS and The Economist are examples of them, okay? Um, I don't necessarily agree, uh, ad adhere to all of the political views of The Economist. The Economist is very much pro-free market, uh, and so their political... Uh, 
there is a, I think there is definitely a political slant. And yet, I still think it's an excellent publication. And I think people who, let's say, are social activists and are very critical of uh, capitalism as it is now, need to be acquainted uh, with what people who don't agree with them are reading. Um, so, and so even in The Economist, you'll find uh, excellent book reviews. And I was talking with my mother about this and saying how I think it seems almost obvious that to me at least, that book reviews are a really important way of learning about books that we don't have time to read. And uh, I realized that actually, I think a lot of students uh, don't have a sense of what a book review is. I think a lot of students think that a book review is like a book report, which is a kind of assignment sometimes we ask students to do uh, when they're in public school and in elementary school or secondary school, um, where you just summarize the main points of a book. Uh, and that's not at all what a, a book review is in, in the sense that I'm talking about, but the kind of thing that you'd find in the TLS, for instance. A, a book review uh, is not just a synthesis, uh, it's not just a summary of the ideas, but it's also someone else engaging with those ideas and reflecting on them critically. And for instance, what the TLS does amazingly well, I think anyone who, who is studying or interested in the humanities or uh, literature, the TLS is uh, a gold mine because not only do they have excellent book reviews, but their book reviews often, they will often get their reviewers to review a group of books that have come out around the same period, at this, around the same period uh, to review a couple of books together that are related to the same topic. And I'll give an example back again from my, my student days as a student of literature. I remember I, I was planning to focus on uh, Spanish literature from Spain. Uh, I, I did do some Latin American literature, but my plan was to go on and do a PhD in peninsular studies. So focusing on things written uh, uh, by authors from Spain. And so obviously uh, the Spanish Civil War loomed large in my imagination. Um, the, it was, uh, there are lots of books and uh, movies and other pieces of art. Think of um, Picasso's Guernica, that fam the famous painting. Um, lots of uh, thought has gone into this conflict, just to like, you think it's kind of like, you know, just the way the Second World War uh, has generated a lot of art. Um, and um, to be honest, a lot of the discussions I'd seen about the Civil War were very simplistic. Uh, the idea was that the Republicans were entirely in the right and that uh, Franco was this evil figure and that was that. There was no... Um, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that I'm pro-Franco by any stretch of the imagination. But anyway... Back to the TLS, that was the first time I'd come across it and I found a book review uh, in which two or three different books to do with the Civil War, written by professional historians. Uh, so basically, it was the first time that I was exposed to a more nuanced account of the Spanish Civil War and it blew my mind because it wasn't, it was, it was so much more complex and interesting than what I'd seen up until that point. It wasn't, um, it, it was getting into the 
the nitty gritty, the details of the 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 war, and how this black and white good uh, good good guy bad guy idea. Well, it was anyway, I, and and that stuck with me, and I didn't read the TLS for years after that. But I think that experience of being marked by something going wow, like this publication does something profoundly differently than uh, most other like than a lot of mainstream media it it that's what long-form journalism does and it's the same thing with i don't know the new yorker or um uh to or the or the econ well the economist is slightly different but anyway um so um i wanted to introduce this idea of being well read too because i think nowadays it's kind of like i said it, it sounds a bit quaint it sounds a bit old-fashioned and in fact, Hilary Mantel talks about this in her review, saying that um, in the UK, at least according to her, she said that um, not having read a book in a social, social setting, if you're at a party, for example, saying like admitting that you haven't read a book could actually be a point of pride, that you could actually um, be proud to say, oh, no, I haven't read that um, in a kind of boorish way. If you're boorish, uh, you're basically kind of uncultured, and it comes from uh, the Afrikaans word, which comes from Dutch, uh, boer, which means farmer. Uh, so I really like this word, <laughs> um, boorishness. Um, so she suggests that a lot of uh, British people are boorish, and um, I don't know if I agree with her. I've never lived in the UK. Um, I know lots of Brits. I mean, uh, for instance, the TLS is, comes from the UK. Uh, the Economist is British. So uh, the, there, there might be uh, a vein of boorishness in British society, but there's e equal, there's just as much uh, the opposite um, in, 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 in British society. So I'm, I don't know if I entirely agree with her. But there's this idea, for example, if you think about like Pierre Bayard, he's French. Um, I've done part of my education in French. Uh, I've had French professors. Um, and my impression is that it's a bit of a cliche, but I think it's a cliche for a reason. It's partly true. The French do have a very traditional uh, attitude to culture or maybe conservative attitude. And so I think, for example, there's the idea of being well-read is still really deeply rooted in French culture, that people don't say it ironically. Like it's still a lot of people, I think the education still system still um, raises people to believe that there is a canon. Um, I mean, the French have what they call the Pantheon, the Pantheon. Um, so it's this place. Uh, I think it's a, it's a place. It's also an idea. The Pantheon, it's uh, uh, certain uh, great uh, French artists uh, are buried at the Pantheon. And it's this idea of um, this group, this elite group of great people, um, uh, and largely white, but not all. I, I read about uh, Josephine Baker, the uh, Ameri black American singer who ended up uh, living in France, was admitted to the Pantheon. Um, so anyway, I'm, as you can see, I'm going off on lots of tangents today. But anyway, um, such is life. That's the way I am. So Going back 
to this idea of different cultures having different ideas about being well-read. So according to Hilary Mantel, the British are very much uh, don't, don't, don't take pride in being well-read and maybe in quite being the opposite, being a bit boorish. Uh, whereas the French still, like, at least in certain social circles, admitting that you haven't read a book, uh, people would maybe look down on you. And what's interesting is I think a lot of people, especially young people, people that, that students, uh, the students I teach who are about half my age in their late teens, early 20s, I think if I surveyed them or you, the, you listener, <laughs> And I said, do you think it's important to be well-read? I think students would quickly object and say, oh, well, that's very old-fashioned. It's very conservative. There's, there's no, you know, who, who, how does anyone have the right to say one book is better than another? And to be perfectly honest, I think this is a really dangerous belief. And I think <laughs> maybe because I'm getting old, um, I'm becoming more conservative in my outlook. Um, uh, but I do know uh, Spain is maybe less conservative than France, definitely less conservative. And I've lived here for the last 12 years, and I feel like here in Spain, there's a real uh, um, hostility to this more conservative attitude to culture and seeing this idea of a pantheon, of a canon, as something oppressive. It doesn't bode well for the future of society. I think the canon is uh, is problematic, but I don't think we can give up on it totally. I want I urge you to take a look at the list of 100 best nonfiction books. You'll see that there there, no, there is actually a plurality of points of view. It's not all just dead white men. And the fact is that there are, there are plenty of in, in, incredibly important books written by dead white men. Um, go through the list and see if there's something that appeals to you. Talk about books with the people. Uh, this is something that, um, if you're not raised with books around, um, it can seem like a very alien concept, and it seems like something that just people who are uh, full of themselves talk about. But books are not, uh, like I talked earlier about being in relationship with a book. A book is a product of a person and a person's imagination. So in a way, uh, a book is, is, is kind of like, it's an artifact, it's an object, but it's also a, a human personality. It's another human experience. And I was talking to my mom yesterday and I was saying, do I, like, I think a lot of teachers have um, faced this dilemma. How do we convince students of the incredible importance of reading? that literally reading could save your life. Books form your personality. They allow you to discover uh, facets of yourself that you didn't even know existed. We need to do a better job as teachers of impressing this upon our students. This is not just to sound clever or uh, it's not just so you can name drop and say, oh, I've read Dickens or I've read Shakespeare. It's that these books contain important truths uh, about human existence that will open up new perspectives on life. I'd love to hear from you. Is there a book that has changed your life? So uh, get in touch. The ad address to get in touch uh, with me is podcast at betterlanguagelearning.com.